Good morning. For the past few weeks, we have been gaining a greater perspective on the spiritual realm. And Pastor Matt has been very clear that this is not just a teaching series, uh, but what we're trying to accomplish is to change our perspective, our vocabulary, the way that we as a church think and pray about and see what is going on around us. We're aiming for greater spiritual awareness. Because the truth is this, we are in a fight. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have a real enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy, and the enemy fights dirty. He, they will do whatever it takes. It's a war. There's no Geneva Convention, and, and our enemy knows us. Satan has been mankind's adversary since the garden, and he meticulously studies human nature. And he's aware of your and my tendencies. He knows when and where and how we are most vulnerable for attack. And so today and next week, we're going to study how the enemy attacks us. We're going to study temptation. And my hope for us today is that we will better understand the steps, that the progression that temptation takes, and, and even when we're likely to be tempted, and then knowing that, how we can guard against it. Because if you understand the enemy's strategy, your opponent's strategy, you're better equipped to fight back. And so if you would, please join me in James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13 today. Because in James, what we're able to see is what temptation is and even how it works. The Bible tells us that when we are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when by their own evil desire, they're dragged away and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James, starting out, very clearly says, when you are tempted, that does not come from God. Don't, don't blame him. Don't accuse God when temptation comes your way. First, because God is too holy to be tempted to sin. And second, he is too loving to personally tempt anyone toward sin, toward evil. It's antithetical to who God is. God is not the one who tempts. And so what exactly is temptation? The truth is temptation in and of itself is not sin. After all, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet was without sin. So temptation alone is not sin. How we choose to respond to it can be. And as we'll see as we study this passage in James, it's what the enemy will use to initiate sin. Theologian Warren Wearsby says this of temptation. This is his definition. Temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. An opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Passing a test in school, it's a good thing. Cheating to achieve the grade, that's a bad thing. Getting a job, it's a good thing. Lying in the interview is a bad way to get it. 
temptation. It's the opportunity to accomplish good in a bad way. And so here is how temptation works. Here's the four-step progression that it takes that we need to recognize, that we need to pay attention to. Step one, the first stage of temptation is desire. Desire. This is where temptation starts, the desire for something. And you can see this in James 1.14. Each person is tempted when by their own evil desire. And there's two words there, evil desire. In the original Greek, it's just one word, and that word is often translated, your, my, your Bible might uh, translate it as lust. And when we think of, of lust, we typically associate it with sexual sin. That's our primary connotation. But in a biblical sense, lust is really any desire that has become warped or distorted or taken to an unhealthy degree. And so I like this translation, evil desire, because desire is a fine thing. God gives us the capacity for desire. We feel hungry and thirsty and tired, and so we desire food and water and sleep. Those are desires for things that the body needs. As a parent of a toddler, I am well aware of my desire for sleep. It outweighs almost every other desire. God created us with those desires. Sex can be a healthy desire when it's desired and utilized in its appropriate God-given realm of marriage. It's a, it's a good desire. But whether it's food or drink or sleep or sex, healthy desires can be easily turned into temptations. Eating is normal. It's necessary. Gluttony is a sin. Sleep is critical. Sloth, laziness is sinful. When we seek to satisfy our desire outside of God's design, that is sin. C.S. Lewis, in his novel, The Great Divorce, says it this way, there's one good, and that is God. And everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And oftentimes, the enemy's strategy is simply to take a good desire and turn it so it's facing the wrong way. It's like a plant that you keep in your house that lead, needs light to grow and, and thrive. And so you put it in the windowsill so it can get enough light. To kill that plant, to turn it from a colorful, beautiful thing to a warped and dying thing, you just have to move it. You don't have to throw it in the trash. You don't have to rip it out by its roots. You just position it incorrectly, away from the light of the sun, and sure enough, it'll die. How does Satan take a good desire and turn it into lust? He deceives. He lies. God gives us these parameters, these boundaries. He fences in the ranch land, and he says, run free. Explore and experience and enjoy the safety that these boundaries provide you. And Satan comes in with the lie and says, those fences, that makes this a prison. And, and there's something better for you on the other side, and, and I'll show you how you can break out. He lies. And that's how we progress from step one to step two of temptation. Temptation is built on desire. Step two is deception. Deception. Satan lies, and if we believe the lie, we're moving further into temptation. And you can see this in our passage. Each person is tempted 
when by their own evil desire they are dragged away and enticed. These two terms, dragged away, enticed, the Bible is using fishing vocabulary. Dragged away, think of a net. Enticed, the language here alludes to baiting a hook. Because a hook is pointed, it's sharp, it looks like a trap. And so that's where bait comes in. Bait serves two purposes. It appeals and it conceals. The worm, the bait on the hook, it's appealing. It it lures a fish in and it hides the danger of that hook underneath. It conceals the consequence of desire. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do to you. Deception is the enemy's go-to move. And and here are some of the, the favorite lies. This won't lead to anything. Just once more won't hurt. You won't get caught. This doesn't affect anybody else. The Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies. It's his native tongue. It's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's what he tries to do with Jesus in the desert. And the fact that it's the enemy's strategy from the beginning and with the Son of God himself should tell us something. And so let's study this. Let's study when and how the enemy attempts to deceive. And you can see it clearly on display in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, I'll summarize this passage today, and we're going to spend more time in it next week. But Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And during this time, Satan shows up to tempt him. Jesus is 30 years old. He's just been baptized. He's about to start his three years of ministry, teaching, healing, miracles. He's on the precipice of all of that. But first, for 40 days, he's fasting. Jesus is praying. He's preparing spiritually. And remember, temptation itself is not sin. Luke 4 tells us Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit And what is about to happen is an all-out assault of temptation. But he doesn't relent. He doesn't give in. Satan tempts Jesus three times in three different ways. First, turn stones into bread. Feed yourself. Second, worship Satan and gain power. Third, test God. Jump off the temple and, and just see if he saves you. Three very specific, very intentional temptations. And if you join us next week, you'll find out why. But what I want to focus on today is the time of temptation. When is this taking place? Because regarding the enemy's tactics, his strategy, there's an informative phrase in Luke 4.13. It says, when the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him. He left Jesus until an opportune time. An opportune time. The verse tells us that the devil has a strategy for when he will tempt someone. There's a plan. The enemy waits for the right moment. He picks his battles. There are days when you are tempted, and it's almost inconsequential. It's like batting away a mosquito. It's no big deal. And then there are other days, it's the same temptation, and and you fight it with every last ounce of willpower, but you give in it's likely that the attack came at a more opportune time. And so let's identify five of these times together. Five times in your life, you should be on the lookout for temptation. 
Because if we know when the deception is going to come, we can prepare for it. We can guard against it. Four of these will show up in Jesus' time in the desert, and we'll get to one more back in James chapter 1. Okay, opportune times for deception. The first one, it's pretty clear in Jesus' life and in ours, when we're alone. For 40 days, Jesus is by himself in the wilderness, and Satan tries to capitalize on this time of isolation. Because when you're alone, you have no support. And there are no witnesses. Alone in a room, in an office, late at night, out of town, a business trip, a, a new place where nobody knows you. No witnesses, no accountability. And when we're alone, it's easier to buy the lie. Who's going to know? Who does this hurt? King David at a time when he should be with his army. He's where he shouldn't be. He's in Jerusalem alone. And his wandering eye spots temptation, and he gives in to sin. The idea of sin in secret is a powerful one. Hey, you're alone. What happens here? It stays here. It, it doesn't count. And when we're alone, we are easy prey. We're easy targets. A second time for deception, it often combines with being alone, is when we're depleted. When Satan tempts him, Jesus has been fasting. He's not eating. And after 40 days, this temptation, turn rocks into food, that's a real enticement. Jesus, who's going to go on and take loaves of bread and fish and multiply it to feed thousands, Satan's just trying to give him a little nudge. Hey, do it for yourself. You're hungry. You need this. When we're hungry, when we're tired, it's a depletion of something that we need. And we should be aware of the temptations and, and the sins that we'll fall into when we're depleted. Because, I mean, how many of us have given in to saying or yelling that angry word or response at a friend or a coworker or a child or our spouse because we were hangry? Hangry. Hungry and angry. Maybe that's a new term. We created a word to describe this feeling of I'm hungry and so I'm allowing myself to be angry. Because I'm depleted, I'm going to give myself an excuse to give in to my emotion. Being depleted, it doesn't even have to be a physical craving. You can be emotionally starved. Working with students, I, I warn them of their first couple weeks, maybe even months of college when they're off on their own, there's no parents around, their friends are, are at different schools. That's a lonely time. It's a time when they're alone and depleted, and that's an opportune time for temptation. Husbands, wives, you have a desire to connect with your spouse, but after a long day at work or a long day with the kids, there's so little margin left over for one another. Date nights, they're fewer and, and further in between. Emotional hunger is a dangerous time for deception. And you can be spiritually depleted. Maybe you've missed several weeks of joining together with other believers, or your small group stopped meeting, or your time in the Bible just isn't what it used to be. It's, it's kind of dried up. When we're depleted or tired exhausted or just running on empty, 
the enemy's lies become more believable. Hey, do this. Try this. Say this because it'll make you feel better. It'll fill you up. Alone and depleted, watch out for temptation. A third time to be aware of it is before opportunity, before a good thing. Jesus goes into the desert to prepare for his public ministry. In a few weeks, the Son of God is going to be revealed to the world. The next three years, the next thousand days, change everything. And Satan wants to derail God's plan before it happens. Because the devil hates spiritual growth. Holiness, joy, purpose. The enemy is and only ever has been against God's plan for your life. And he will attempt to sabotage any potential good before it can happen. Moving and and starting a new job. Uh, Choosing to to serve in a ministry. Starting out in uh, in serving. Beginning a marriage right before having a child. These are momentous occasions, and and they come with pretty significant decisions. And the moments preceding these big opportunities often become rife with temptation, don't they? Before a big change in life, you might feel nervous or or there's this anxiety and maybe you feel inadequate or underprepared, and there's some temptation, whatever it is for you, that you've kept at bay for a while. But suddenly it feels like, you know, if I just indulge, just a little, it might help pacify all of those other emotions. And the enemy knows that he can undermine God's plan in your life by sabotaging it with a fleeting pleasure, an angry outburst, or a, a really bad choice. And the lie might even sound like this. After I'm settled or after we're married, or after the baby comes, then, then this will stop. I'll put an end to it. But right now, I should indulge just once more. I think it brings the enemy sick pleasure, corrupting and destroying and deceiving someone right before something good in life. Alone, depleted, before opportunity. One more from Luke chapter 4. After success... After success, Jesus goes into the wilderness after his baptism. He has just heard God's voice from heaven. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. This moment is this hinge in his life from relative obscurity to incredible ministry. It's a, it's a moment of success. And when you're having success, you feel strong. You feel somewhat comfortable. It might be spiritual success over a past shame or a sin struggle. And, and when you feel safe, you feel successful, you think, I, I'm not going to struggle with that sin anymore. I, I think I've, I've overcome it. I, I beat it. But you might be right in the enemy's crosshairs for temptation. King David, he, he built up the kingdom. He had these great victories. He brings the ark back to Jerusalem. He's a man after God's own heart. He writes incredible worship poetry, success after success after success. And then he's on his roof alone, and then he commits adultery, and then he has a man killed. He commits murder. The Bible tells us to beware temptation when we feel secure. 
1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Watch yourself. The enemy is still out there even after success. Our final opportune time this morning, let's go back to James chapter 1 and study the context of this passage. What is James writing about that he is compelled to shift his attention to talk about temptation? The beginning of James's letter says, Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. During trials. A persecution for your faith or simply a difficult or tumultuous time in life. James talks about trials and then he says, During those trials, watch out for temptation. Because a trial might cause you to doubt God's presence in your life, or even His goodness. And, and trials, by definition, are trying. They tax us mentally and emotionally and, and physically and spiritually. And when we're stressed or, or just struggling, or life isn't what we dreamed it was going to be, when things aren't going great, Satan will slither up with a lie and say, hey, things have been difficult, and you deserve to feel better with a little bit of sin, not a lot, just enough to soothe these feelings. You deserve it. Alone, depleted, before something good, after success, during trials. These are opportune times. These are five of the enemy's favorite days to go fishing because he wants to deceive you. He's going to look for a way to bait that hook just for you. He'll take a desire and he'll try to get you to take a bite. So this is the progression. Temptation goes from desire to deception, and when the lie is believed and acted upon, it leads to disobedience. Disobedience. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Disobedience is sin. It's the willful choice to turn away from God and toward a sinful act, a sinful pattern of of thinking, a, a sinful lifestyle. And sometimes... Disobedience is a temporary lapse. It's, it's a second glance or thought. The first time, whatever it was, caught your eye or crossed your mind, that was a mistake. But the choice to look again, to think about it more and more, knowing that it's wrong, that's disobedience. Disobedience can also become lived in. It, it can become that stronghold that we talked about last week. You start down a road or, or a life contrary to what you know that God has for you. And over time, it feels less and less like disobedience because you're forgetting what it felt like to obey in the first place. This third step, this is it, where temptation becomes sin. The Bible says that sin is now birthed, and it's going to grow up. It's going to mature. Sin works its way through a person's life like yeast through dough or like water eroding rock over time. And it leads to our fourth step. The final one. After desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. Sin leads to death. There are consequences, always. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, for the rest of your life. You may think there weren't tangible repercussions, you didn't get caught, but the damage is done to the human soul, person's relationship to other people, to a person's relationship with God. 
That's what happens when disobedience takes place. Now, death, it has many faces, it, it takes many forms, but all disobedience to God leads to death. It could be the death of a friendship, a relationship. Often it's the death of a marriage. It could be the death of opportunity in life, the death of potential, the death of passion, the death of a dream. I think most often sin leads to the death of innocence. And yeah, big picture, even in direct and, and tragic ways, sin leads to physical death too. Now, can God rescue and redeem and bring back to life things that are dead? Uh, a friendship, a marriage, even innocence? Yes. Absolutely yes. He is a great God and a gracious Redeemer. But let's make no mistake, the death is still real. It still happened. It still caused significant pain. And sometimes death is death. Sin, disobedience leads to death. The enemy is a liar. I hope you're, you're seeing that. And do you want to know, I think, his favorite lie? There is no consequence for this. There's no consequence for this. That was it. That was the lie spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden, and it led straight to death. Temptation is a four-step progression. These are the enemy's moves. Desire, deception, disobedience, and death. So what now? How do we... How do we guard against temptation? We know about it. We know when it's likely going to show up in our lives. What can we do? Let's talk defense. Let's look at two specific ways that we can fight temptation in our lives. The first way to fight it is to pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. The Bible in 2 Timothy tells us to flee the evil desires of youth and to pursue righteousness. And those go hand in hand. It's not just enough to work really hard at avoiding sin, fleeing the evil. We need to chase after and pursue good things as well. And not just because it helps us to avoid the bad things, but because that's what we're made for. It's what's best for us. So often, here's, here's what Christians do, the, the pattern we fall into. Temptation occurs. There's some kind of spiritual attack and we go, this is tough. I better up the dosage of the good stuff. I didn't read my Bible yesterday, so I'm going to read twice as much today. I didn't really pray last week, so I'm going to pray for 30 minutes a day this week. And then when the temptation wears off or the attack kind of stops, so do we. And the pursuit of righteousness becomes the medicine that we only ever take when we feel really sick. And if you're trying to just cover over temptation in your life with a balm of righteousness, listen, it might work. It really might for a little while. But you're not addressing the real issue. To fight sin, to guard against temptation, you've certainly got to flee. But you also need intentional steps toward righteousness. To make righteous choices so that when temptation comes, you're already on the right track, and you're ready to fight. In college, I was in a fraternity, and as a senior, uh, 
I heard about one of our freshmen whose car kept getting stolen. And it happened enough times, it started to become kind of this legendary joke for us. His car would go missing, the thieves would, would drive it around till it ran out of gas, and then they would just ditch it somewhere on the drag or in West Campus. And this must have happened six or seven times, like no joke. And so we finally approached him about it. Like, man, you are either the unluckiest person in Austin or there's something else going on. And we came to find out that this freshman would not only leave his car unlocked, he'd leave the keys tucked into the sun visor. <laughs> I, I only thought people did that in movies. I'm, like, now, he would try various defenses against theft. He'd park his car in different places. He'd try to make sure he was in a garage, not on the street. He, he even started leaving less gas in it so they couldn't get as far. <laughs> and, and we heard this, and we just mocked him relentlessly. We just berated him. Because at some point, the car's not getting stolen. You're, you're just loaning it out. That happens one time, and you should learn your lesson. Just take the keys, change one thing, and it will not happen again. We laugh at a, a foolish decision like that. It's a funny story about not understanding consequences and not changing. But isn't this how we often deal with temptation? We know the issue. We know what it is that's going to tempt us. And, and, and sure, we're trying to flee, but we're, we're not really choosing to change that one thing. We're not pursuing righteousness. If pornography is the temptation for you, if that sin has a foothold, maybe it's a stronghold, where are those car keys? Is your defense right now just fleeing whenever you can and feeling really bad and carrying shame and guilt and trying really, really hard not to look or click again. Because what the enemy will do will just, he'll just wait you out. He'll wait till you're alone or you're depleted. He'll look for another opportune time. If that's a temptation, if it's a stronghold in your soul, it's time to take away those keys. It's time to change something so that, yes, you can flee evil and also pursue righteousness. Choose to put safety filters on every single device. Charge the phone outside of the room. Buy accountability software. Confess to a friend or to your spouse. Ask for help. And listen to me, as I'm saying this right now, I, I believe the enemy's already preparing lies. It's going to be too inconvenient. It's too embarrassing. It's not that big of an issue. Don't buy it. Don't buy it anymore. If you still think that temptation is just a momentary lapse in judgment, it's time to stink, start thinking differently. Understand that this is a fight. Quit thinking that a Nerf gun is sufficient when you're storming the beaches of Normandy. Start fighting back. Matt talked about this last week. Get a fight plan in place. And, and here's what that might look like. Come up with a temptation drill. Okay, come up with your go-to move so when that thought creeps in, when that lie is being whispered in your ear, you don't let it go unabated. During those opportune times, recognize it 
and anticipate temptation might be coming. Say or think or do something differently to pursue righteousness. Have a temptation drill ready. You could pray for yourself. Pray that God would give you the courage to to stand and fight, that he would give you what you need to resist. Pray for somebody else. Get get your mind off yourself for a while. Pray for a friend or, or family. Find a favorite psalm. Find a passage of scripture that you can recite to yourself out loud or just over and over in your mind. Psalm 16, Psalm 23, those are two of my favorites. I want to encourage you today, this afternoon, think through this. Go to lunch and write it down. Type it in your phone. Know what your temptation drill is going to be so that this week when temptation rears its head, you're ready to fight and and punch it in the mouth. That's our first defense, pursue righteousness. Another way to defend ourselves is to find accountability. Get other people to join you in the fight. 2 Timothy 2.22, the rest of that verse, it says, flee the evil desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. As you fight temptation, as you pursue righteousness, find people who can come alongside you. If your primary temptation is to compare yourself, to compare your life to other people, if your time spent on social media leads to daydreaming about the life that you wish you had or the husband or the wife that you wish yours was, the things that you, you think you deserve, that's a terrible and dangerous place to be all alone. In a great way, maybe the best way to fight that comparison temptation is to tell someone, things are not how I want them to be right now, and here's how I'm being tempted. Share those feelings with a friend, a small group member, a mentor. Find an accountability partner who will speak truth into your life, not just what you want to hear or what they think you want to hear, but truth. Find someone that can join you in the fight, that can check in with you, that can pray with you. Because if you think you're equipped to win on your own, you're probably going to lose. All of us, we need men or women in our lives who can humbly tell us the truth, whom we can humbly tell the truth to and say, listen, it's been a terrible week. I am being tempted. You need someone who will ask you how you're doing, who will encourage you, and even rebuke you and tell you, you know what, it's time to delete that app from your phone, to end that unhealthy relationship. It's time to start making a different choice. You need someone who will remind you of who you are in Christ. Here at Grace, it's a great place to find accountability, to find other people to pursue righteousness with. We have men's groups and women's groups. We have communities for singles and couples and younger folks and older folks. You can serve alongside other believers. You can join a small group to meet with in your house. And, and listen, our, our goal is not just to get people busy. It's, it's not our strategy to say, hey, let's just throw a lot of ministries and groups on the calendar so that people have no time to sin. That's not our mission. Our mission as a church is to help people become more like Christ in all of life, and we believe that that happens in the context of relationships. And so stop by the visitor table and let us tell you how you could get plugged in. 
get involved again in that group that you, you used to meet with. Jump back into serving. Take a friend to breakfast or lunch this week and ask them, will you keep me accountable for these things? Give them permission to speak truth into your life. Seek out other people who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Find accountability. The truth is this. God gives us ways to defend ourselves. He doesn't abandon us when we're tempted. He knows what it's like. And and when we choose to fight, we have the authority and we have the power of the king on our side and within us. The war is over. The war's already been won. That that was accomplished on the cross through Jesus' death and resurrection. What we have going on now, they're just skirmishes. And we can fight. And when we fight alongside other Christians together, we fight those lies. We can win when the enemy attacks us. Get a fight plan in place. Pursue righteousness and find accountability. That's my prayer for us as a church, for us as individuals. Let me pray that for us today. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you sent your son for us. God, that you brought us back to yourself, that you redeemed us and restored our relationship with you. We pray that when we face temptation, even today, even this week, that we would remember whose we are, who we belong to. God, that we are children of the King. And so help us to to flee evil, to pursue righteousness, to find people that we can do that in life with. God, remind us of your great love for us and what you have called us to as we live to glorify you in all that we do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.